This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's guest is H.G. Perry, author of The Magician's Daughter that came out earlier this year. The Magician's Daughter is a good old-fashioned, old-school, coming-of-age fantasy that mixes family and magic and all sorts of wonderful characters like a mercurial magician. Uh, There's just delightful things happening left and right. There is a a setting that takes place on like a hidden legendary island off of the coast of Ireland. So much is going on in this book. There are magical animals that you are going to come to love. And that is part of what we discussed today on our episode H.G. and I discuss her fascination and deep research into not just mice and rabbits, but the history of mice and rabbits in literature. It's a really fascinating conversation and something that she has dug deep into, into her own research. I think you're really, really going to enjoy this conversation. I learned just a whole bunch about things that I a, didn't know, and B, hadn't really thought about in a while, like all of these different books and stories that I experienced growing up that really did have a lot more mice and rabbits in them than I, than I came to realize. So I think you're going to appreciate this. And if you are a listener of a certain age, I think you'll get just a little bit nostalgic for some of the stories we discussed. Before I get to that conversation, I want to offer you a book recommendation. I just finished Honor by Thridi Omrigar. It is an incredible novel. I told someone else earlier this week that if you're a fan of Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, I think you'll really enjoy Honor. It is the story of an Indian American journalist named Smita who returns to India to cover an extremely tragic and horrifying story. Uh, she was originally raised in India, and you don't find out until much later in the book why her family ended up leaving. But the story of a Hindu and a Muslim getting married and then eventually the uh, tragedy that happens because of the woman's family seeing that as a sign of disrespect. All of these horrible events that happen kind of conjure up and, and dig up all the things that Smita had gone through in her own life. And you, what you discover throughout this book is this depiction of India as this land that contains multitudes. You know, it's it's this place where there is, yes, a lot of violence between different religions and there is different caste systems, but there's also this 
unrelenting beauty and kindness and willingness to sacrifice for other people, even if you have never met them before. It's a little tragic, but it's tender and it's, like I said, it's beautiful. Um, There's a lot of love and hope, but there's also betrayal and sacrifice and just so much going on. It really is the story of not just Smita, but two different women that you come to learn about and peel back the layers of their story as you read on and on. It was a very popular book when it came out last year. I believe it was a a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. That is Honor by Thridi Umragar, a phenomenal book. I think you're really going to love it. If you ever want to get more book recommendations from me, you can always email me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. There you can send me your own passions or what you've been reading lately, and I'll be happy to give you some book recommendations based on the things you're interested in. And as always, if you have a few minutes, if you could leave a quick recommendation or review uh, on my podcast pages, wherever you listen, whether it's on Apple or Spotify or iHeartRadio, it just helps people find me just a little bit more easily. And it really makes my day when I get to see those messages. Okay. That is all the housekeeping. I am so excited for you all to listen to this conversation with HG Perry, author of The Magician's Daughter on Passions and Prologues. Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Okay, Hannah, what is the thing you're super passionate about that we're going to be discussing today? Uh, I mean, a lot of things, but today I think we're talking about rabbits and mice and how I've just let them take over my house. Oh, this is very exciting. Okay, so how did this start? How how did this uh, fascination begin? Uh, I mean, it's a very geeky start, but um, it was back... Probably, yeah, 2015 or so when I was doing my doctoral thesis and I was doing it on children's fantasy and the epic tradition and basically arguing that children's books had taken up the mantle of classical epic and so forth, which doesn't sound like it ought to have a lot to do with it. But it does because I read Watership Down, mm-hmm. which was basically hitched and the in the year straight retelling but with rabbits. And um, I, which it was, and I fell in love with it completely. It immediately became about 50% of my personality. Um, And then, yeah, um, and sort of through that, even though obviously, so, you know, um, they're not straight, um, (laughs) they're not exactly totally realistic rabbits and watership down, but I started getting interested in 
actual real rabbit. Um, and then about that time, um, my sister got a job um, teaching out at the Kapi Coast and um, we kind of decided that we'd rent a flat together out there. And I sort of thought, well, if I'm leaving the inner city and I'm getting a house by the beach and we've got room, then I'm going to try and adopt a couple of rabbits. So um, we did pretty much um, almost before I'd unpacked. Um, and I went about it in, um, obviously, because I hadn't done enough research, even though I thought I had. So I did all made all the mistakes that first time rabbit people always made. So, I mean, we tried to go to a rescue, but we didn't actually have our own transport at the time. So um, we ended up, um, so we couldn't get out there. So we ended up... Um, stopping by a pet shop and they had a big sign up saying two rabbits for the price of one included with the patch. So we just thought, hey, yay, um, this sounds great. So um, first of all, they came from a pet shop and you should not get rabbits from a pet shop for a lot of reasons. I don't even think you can here. Um, fortunately, the biggest reason is that usually they aren't very good at telling if they're male or female and you end up with a whole bunch more in a month. Um, that one we didn't fall into. <laughs> um, but yeah, you in just in general, you don't get them from pet shops because it sort of it supports unethical breeding practices usually. Um, you don't really know what you're getting, all those reasons. So um we got them from the pet shop anyway. Um they were both boys, which again, you're not it's not recommended that you keep rabbit uh, generally rabbit pairs if they're both boys as soon as they hit puberty they start fighting. Um, so not good. Um, they weren't neutered, which you need to neuter or spay rabbits straight away. Um, they came with a, a the pet shop hutch they came with was a tiny, stupid pet shop hutch. Um, we kept them outdoors, which you now wouldn't do. So yeah, we did all the everything wrong. And um, they were extremely, yeah, it was a huge learning curve because they were, I mean, they were wonderful. I completely, they immediately became the other 50% on personality. Um, but they were, um, yeah, they're, I don't know, they're rabbits, how familiar people are with them generally, but they're, I sort of thought of them as they would be fairly tame and just stay outside, but they're actually extremely complicated mm-hmm. little animals, um, especially during the teenage phase, which these two are in. Um, they get, they're very, yeah, they're, they're very complicated. Um, they've got a very complicated hierarchy. They've got a very complicated language um, to learn which um, I feel like we grow up kind of more or less picking up how to speak to dogs and cats. But rabbits are, we don't. And it doesn't help that they, they're they non-vocal animals, so they don't actually have any vocal boards. So um, if they want to make a noise, they can only growl, thump, or very occasionally green, which is horrible. And those aren't good noises. So um, don't, yeah, you don't want to hear any of those. So yeah, they're, they're very... It's, they're very subtle in how they communicate and that's a hard thing to work out. Um, so yeah, it, it was a lot of, a lot of learning curves. Um, but you know, we kind of, um, yeah, we got, got to know them really well. Um, we improved the rabbit care a lot. Um, we kind of learned how to do everything and I found that really interesting in itself. And I also kind of got really interested in, well, if, I, if it kind of, if we didn't know all the stuff going in, then chances are most people wouldn't know all the stuff going in, which probably means that there are a lot of, which 
turns out there are a lot of rabbits out there that aren't being kept properly or there are a lot of people that take them on and then take them to shelters when they don't know a lot about them. Um, so I sort of got in touch with the local animal shelter and was like, can I help out there? So I started out volunteering there, mostly with the rabbits, but also kind of with the cats and stuff. And yeah, that kind of um, that kind of led to one you know, another. We've certainly got the two rabbits, but then I eventually got into the mice as well. And we've now got seven of those currently, which are kind of coming partly, mostly coming from, coming from the rescues and so forth. And yeah, that's kind of where it all got started. Yeah. I, so, I, okay, I want to ask, ask a, a lot of questions. But one, um, yeah. uh, before I get into some of my more specific questions, you mentioned the, like, the communication of rabbits. And that's something, yeah. I, can you like... Maybe explain a little bit more about that because you're right. I'm literally sitting next to my 12 and a half year old dog as we speak. And like you said, like I have learned to yeah. uh, over the years, I've learned to ha- how to kind of read his mannerisms. But also, like you said, he's very vocal. Um, so can you sort of talk about that a little bit? Like how how you learn to read their nonverbal communication and sort of how you interact with them? Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting too, yeah, like like you said about dogs. I feel like dogs and cats um, also, as well as we know how to talk to them, but you're right, I feel like they know how to talk to us a lot more as well and they know how to get their message across a lot more, whereas um, rabbits haven't been domesticated as that long and they don't really, yeah, they haven't usually got the same same way of talking to us, so it's interesting. Um, with rabbits, it, say, it, it's mostly body language, um, so a lot of it is their ears, which is why lops are really lops are really hard because their ears don't move. Um, and I don't know how they talk to other rabbits, frankly. But um, yeah, so a lot of it is what their ears are doing. Um, if their ears are up, if their ears are down, a lot of it is um, just yeah, just just straight up um, body language. Like if they're aggressive they're yeah if they're fairly aggressive their ears will go back and their tail will go up and that's fairly recognizable um mm-hmm. they do things um if they're happy like the kind of the cutest thing they do is if they're happy they do something called a binky um which is basically they just kind of jump in midair and do little twists in midair and often they'll <laughs> flick their ears as well yeah but kind of dance really and that's really cute um so that's if, if they're happy um you know they're very good um if they want your attention, they, let's say, the straightforward ones, like I've got two two at the moment, um, but um, Connell and Fleischman, who are named after Northern Exposure, um, <laughs> which was a <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, when they start to, if you know that show, when they started to fight, our oh, parents were just like, well, why did you name them that? I know. <laughs> but yes, um, yes, so, so yeah, Connell's very straightforward bunny. If he wants something, he'll usually come and nudge you with his nose or he'll, you know, do things like that. Um, Flashman's a very complicated, neurotic little rabbit. And like, um, yeah, he is, as you, we named him well. Um, but yeah, um, and yeah, so, I mean, also I should, I should say, yeah, generally if they want attention, they'll do stuff like they'll put their head flat on the ground and that means they want you to pat them and stuff like that. Um, yeah, Flashman's a very neurotic little bunny and he's very worried about his place in the hierarchy all the time so it took us ages to work out that when he wanted attention paid to him his way of letting us know that would be to stare at us for a while and then run away and we're supposed to follow him (laughs) and it took us ages to work out because we would just go oh he's clearly 
running away and then he'd get extremely upset and he'd thump for no reason and it turned out that what he was wanting was reassurance that we really wanted to <laughs> come and pay attention to him but he was getting this by running off into a corner um which is relatable i guess you know <laughs> going away and seeing if we'd if we'd follow um yeah so it, it's stuff like that they're they have body language, but they also, because they're extremely hierarchical animals, they don't always ask for things straightforwardly. They're often looking for reassurance about where they sit in that placement. So, yeah, you've got to, and they're very jealous of each other all the time. So you've always got to try and find ways to, yeah, reassure them that they're special and valued and, you know. <laughs> They're like teenagers. <laughs> that is so fascinating. And and I'm interested, I, I, I'm curious, when you first said that you kind of studied like almost the history of like the literature of, of them, mm. I, I at first yeah. I was like, oh, that's interesting. But then as you were talking, the more I thought about it, it's like, you know, there's all of the Beatrix Potter stories. There's, you know, the there's the white rabbit from, you know, Alice in Wonderland, the March Hare. There's... Yeah. Um, you know, there's, uh, in his dark materials, you know, one of the main demons is a, is a rabbit. There's, yeah. there's all these different stories. There's obviously Watership Down, um, you know, Velveteen Rabbit. And I was like, oh my God, there's so, as you were talking, I was like, there's, yeah, yeah, so, so many of them. Um, yeah. In your studies, like, did you come across, like, why they are such an, like, enduring, I mean, obviously they're, like you said, they're cute and they're adorable, but like, did you come across any like writing as to why they're so prevalent in literature? No, and I'm not really sure why, because it's interesting, because yeah, the, that's also what when I came about when I started keeping mice, there are a lot of books about mice mm -hmm. and a lot about rabbits. And yet, um, you know, they're... I don't know, but uh, yeah, generally mice people put out traps for them, and at least in New Zealand, rabbits are kind of you know there are pests that we try to keep down usually. Mm -hmm. So it is it is a funny thing, yeah. I'm, I mean, I I can only assume that it partly. I mean, the the one thing I'll say, um, which is, I think I don't know why it's rabbit specifically, but um, one of the things that really interests me about Watership Down, and I think it applies to a lot of others, was that the reason why. Richard Adams, when he wrote Watership Down, was telling a story about rabbits, um, was because he said he wanted to write a, you know, an epic, like a heroic story for his kids. But he thought that like human beings don't feel epic anymore because our world's so safe. You know, like we could mm -hmm. get the plane and we could travel to the other side of the world, but that wouldn't be an epic journey. That would just be a, you know, a holiday or a uh -huh. business trip. Whereas like with a rabbit, he said they, they still feel epic because they're down on the ground and everything is dangerous. And if they're crossing a field, you know, there's going to be, you know, there's foxes and there's guns and everything is still in that dangerous kind of adventure space that um, children kind of still are in. But, you know, and obviously people back in, in the days of adventure stories were still in. So I think that that's part of it. I think just wild animals in general are something that um that children see in their daily lives, but they're also they're also living in the world, but everything they experience is still at that heightened dangerous adventure kind of level. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's you're absolutely right. And like I when you were talking about um we're talking about mice as well. It, you're right. It is the same thing. Like I, 
I don't think it's based off of a book, but I don't know if you remember. Um, actually, the year I was born in 1986, a movie came out called An American Tale. It's all about um, five little mouse squids. And uh, it's like this story of this. <laughs> it, it's absolutely supposed to be an allegory, but it's this small Jewish mouse family that basically travels from Russia to America. And then there's a second one called Five Will Goes West. Um, much like any cartoon movie from the 1980s and early 90s, it is like brutal and haunting and terrifying. Not unlike yes. Archer. Oh um, my God. Yes. Yeah. But you're right. Like I, I remember watching it and it, you're it, there is like an epicness of it too. Cause like you said, there's one thing of, oh, these people crossed the the Atlantic. It's another thing entirely like this mouse family found a way to get to, from Russia to the United right. States. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. That's so interesting. And I do think too, there's something that with kids books, particularly you can have these big, dark, scary things happen to, to animals in the animal world that you wouldn't want to depict necessarily happening in a, ki- in a kid's book. And that's what strikes when I read stuff like Watership Down and Barthing Wood and, and even Beatrix Potter. There's mm-hmm. such a lot of, you know, death and and threat, you know, threat of death and, you know, and terror, you know, and yeah, like big, scary things that I feel like that's a, something that we can show to kids by our animals but you don't necessarily want to depict you know yeah so before you started studying this was this something that you were always fascinated by or was it um you know as you were doing your studies like you just kind of noticed something in watership down that, that stuck with you like was this a an area of literature and then by extension an area of nature which you you know now are are pets for you that you had an interest in like your whole life or is it a little bit later in life? Um, a, a bit of both. I mean, I think I grew up on all the animal stories and we partially grew up. Um, and yeah, we, we had a, yeah, I, mean, I grew up in a, a few different places, but we sort of our, our formative years, I was out, we were out in the country. Um, so we had some pets there and we, we lived, we our, had like a lifestyle block on a horse stage. So we we're sort of surrounded by, by that kind of thing and I love that but then we sort of moved to the city and my um and then yeah and then eventually I moved to Wellington to study and my my literary interests so to speak were always in um in epic and adventure stories and I specific and, and classical particularly I I did a classics degree and so that's where it came from was sort of like classical myth and epic um and I I started out I basically where I got to was I started out doing um a lot of work on Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. And I got specifically interested via Lord of the Rings. I got interested in The Hobbit and how those children's book things were um, functioning in those kind of epic environments. Um, then I, that kind of got me into Watership Down, um, which again was the children's book and the epic. So that was how I got there. But then once I, once I got there, I started getting also interested in the animal story element. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I, again, I was something I'd loved when I was a little kid, but I hadn't looked at my entire, entire adolescence my, when, I, when I was studying. So it kind of, yeah, it kind of reminded me of that. And that's when I sort of got interested in the, the animal story side. And that was when I got interested in the, the real animal side, which I, I mean, I love for, for a lot of reasons, but I think also it was, it, what was interesting about that was that, um, just because everything else I was doing was so, was related to either writing. I mean, either stuff I love doing, it's like writing and I love history and I love all that kind of thing, but they were all very similar. 
Whereas like stuff I was doing with animals, I think it just really, it kind of puts you in, it's using a different part of your brain and it puts you in a different mindset because it's not about sitting at a computer. You, there's research involved sometimes, but it's not about sitting at a computer and typing things or even going to places and researching things. But, you know, you have to actually physically get out there and um, interact and do all that. And yeah, and I, that was, it was really great. Yeah. So what are some things about keeping rabbit and mice as pets that people might not realize? You mentioned the fact with rabbits that they, you know, they're nonverbal, but they have a very kind of complicated communication structure and hierarchy. What are some things that people might not realize if they were interested in in having these types of pets? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, the, the, the big one just in terms of pet care is that you, they, both of them, mice as well, we're talking showing it specifically about rabbits. They you know, say the, the biggest thing is um, the, the amount of space they need is enormous. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, say you go to a pet shop and they give you a tiny little hut and they say, oh yeah, they can just stay in here for the most part. And they can't. Like the, the recommended thing, if you're, if you're getting an actual, a hutch or an area for rabbits, the recommended is sort of minimum two by three meters. Mm-hmm. Um, that's if it, you know, if, if you're keeping them in a hutch. Ours generally, ours is sort of, when I say they've taken over the house, like they have their own room in the house and they have a big pen in the, in the yard that basically we let them out in the morning and they put themselves into it. Um, they know how to do that. Um, and that's how they close up to their safe during the day. And then in the, um, and then an evening when we get home or, if, you know, we've got time, we just open the door and they, they have the whole run of the property. Mm-mm. So, um, you know, and I think a lot of people just have them, very, we have them living in their houses um, full time, which is great, except that they do tend to be quite destructive. So you things get eaten, <laughs> but don't, you know. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, so that that's a big thing. But I think with, um, and same with, same with my um, caters you get at pet shop are, cruel basically you need a much bigger one than that um but i think i don't know what really yeah so there's all the kind of pet care elements rabbits are tricky too because um the um generally they need you need more than one unless you have a rabbit that really hates other rabbits (laughs) or you have you can be with them 24 hours a day somehow but generally you can't they generally need to be together and that can as you sort of found out with ours can be easy if you just happen to have, you know, if you match two and they like each other their whole lives, that's great. But they're very, very picky about who they want to spend their lives with. And that's why it can be a really complicated process finding two that work together and bonding them can take months. Um, and there's a lot of, um, yeah, it can be a, yeah, it can be a lot of fight and a lot of heartbreak at times. Um, but yeah, just into, I don't that that's, that's the hard stuff that, the good stuff, I think, um, with both of them, and I think it really struck me with mice as well. They are just, they they are. In, I think, especially when you say, especially with mice, when you say you've got mice, people tend to think of them just as kind of like a, a you know, like insects, insects or something like. They don't. They just kind of run around and do things. Mm-hmm. But everyone I've ever met actually has every bit as much of a personality and every bit as much of a, you know, what take your pick as a dog or a cat has had. Like I've had dogs and cats as well. Um, and yeah, they are, they are really fully formed 
individuals and they because they have both of them have very complicated social structures they're very they're very loving with each other they're very and they really if you got once you've won them over they you they treat you as part of that social structure so that's both very interesting but very very nice as well um and yeah they're very say they're very very smart um they do work as i've said they don't necessarily know how to communicate with humans in such a way but you do kind of work out a, a language like my um my oldest mouse who's the alpha mouse um most mouse communications um are ultrasonic but she yeah you know, so you can't really hear it but she's managed to work out the exact pitch i can hear <laughs> and she'll come up to me and she'll use it to ask me for things you know and she can do all that yeah so no so there they are i think i think what What's interesting about them is, yeah, say the social structure, how smart they are, just how, and I think it's quite, I think it's quite humbling in a way, just the way that I feel like we tend, human beings, I should say, tend to kind of assign intelligence to animals that we want to interact with, like Mm -hmm. dogs or cats, whereas the animals that we, we don't want to interact with, like, you know, cows or chickens or, you know, mice called their pests or whatever, we tend to just go, oh, they're, you know. Mm-hmm. They're not very smart, whereas um, my dog is is incredibly smart, you know. Um, which and the thing is, uh, yeah, generally from from interacting with a lot, I haven't really noticed any difference in intelligence between different species. It's just our how willing we are to get to know what's going on with them. Yeah. So it, this may be an interesting question, but how slash if I suppose. Does like your interaction with the, you know the rabbits and, and mice you have as pets like is there any connection between how you take care of them and interact with them and then how you write out your stories like I know that sometimes this is an easier question for people to answer. I mean the book I've got coming out now it, it, yes of the that has rabbits in it um, right yeah but um, in general um, I. I mean, and say, part, not not a great deal in some ways. Um, I think it definitely. Um, it, this this sounds a bit a bit weird and abstract, but I I feel like a lot of of interacting with them. Um, what I what, because they're prey animals, um, both rabbits and mice, they have this very interesting way of reacting to the world that they're they're obviously programmed to be very weary of it but they're also incredibly curious about it and incredibly they always they're very like they're very driven by wanting to find out what new things are and check and, and investigating and so forth and i think a lot of um what's interesting about that is that kind of it kind of when you're with them it kind of keys you into really noticing things about the world and like because i tend to be when i'm writing i tend to be very dialogue driven <laughs> And very research driven. Um, so I think um, the nice, yeah, the nice thing about you know being outside and, and doing things with them and having to be very aware of the natural environment, the way they're seeing it, kind of really keys you into being better at at thinking about the the actual physical setting that you that you are living in, um, the actual world you're living in, and I guess yeah, just. In a more abstract sense, what um, what I was just saying, I think um, I think that uh, it, how, the fact that how 
full of personality they are help you kind of counter your prejudices a little we just yeah just remember that there's this whole world going on that you're not um necessarily you know that you've got a lot of preconceptions about but when you get to research it a bit more things are actually quite different yeah uh, if that makes any sense it does yeah and what about um like your your history of studying and, and interacting with like say watership down uh, i'm thinking you know i'll I'm, I'm thinking of, of the books you've written, like a lot of them are obviously very like fantasy and, and magic centric, yeah. but do you see a through line, whether it's the uh, emotions or like the politics of that type of story? Like I, I, I think of um, one of your, your previous books we're talking about before we started recording, A Declaration of the Rights of Magicians, which I love. Yeah. Uh, there's mm-hmm. There's so much in there about like, revolution and war and power and all these different like clashing things like do you think there's any connection between the types of stories you were studying and the types of stories you now write oh definitely yeah no i mean say my when i was studying uh, when i was an academic um my interest was always um it was it was always a classical epic basically um and a bit of old English ethic and that kind of thing. So I'm very interested in, um, yeah, so that that definitely come, came through. I mean, I'm very interested in heroic codes. I'm very interested in, um, yeah, and, and specifically in, like, say, with, with the Aeneid and with stuff like that, with, with changing heroic codes. Like, I love writing about worlds that are on the cusp of moving from one kind of heroic code to another, so that was very much what I was trying to do with Declaration of the Rights of Magicians and that the idea of that dramatizing that 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 moment where you're um you're you know of the enlightenment where you know you're moving from this kind of older way of looking at the world into a sort of newer, hopefully kinder way of looking at the world, um, with all those social changes that were taking place. But at the same time, yeah, all all the conflict that brings up and so forth. So a lot of that came over from it. Um, yeah, and yeah, and I learned a lot of stuff like that. And obviously, um, the book, um, the magician's daughter, was very more directly. It was it was very much um, wanting to be in the vein of a lot of those children's books. Um, which, yeah, um, I mean, for like, I, and it, it's an adult book, but it's a book about. Uh, young woman who's kind of moving into the adult world and what that finding out about all its complications and what that and what those mean um and she's drawing on her own knowledge of you know basically the books she's grown up with are all she's got to draw on so she's trying to use those to navigate the world and yeah i was i was very interested in trying to capture that kind of children's book coming of age thing where um yeah with with all its kind of darknesses and and it's um yeah, and, and and the changes, I guess. Yeah, and that, you know what? That's such an interesting way of, of looking at it. And and you're right; like you absolutely hit that perfectly with this book because you're right. Like there's there's all of these stories that we all read as children, like whether it is like you know Belts and Rabbit, Watership Down, um, or like you know anything like Chronicles of Narnia, you know. His Dark Materials, you mentioned Lord of the Rings. Like We read as children these very magical, expansive stories. And then what, what you're, obviously some of those are also for adults, but like what, what you've done you know, with The Magician's Daughter is integrated those 
childlike magical feelings into an adult book. And and I think that's such a it's such an interesting thing to be able to do because I feel like the the genre of fantasy sometimes gets like a bad rap for adults, which is so weird to me because we all adore these yeah. books as kids. And then it's like for some reason when you transition into adult, you shouldn't read them anymore. I hate that idea. So I love that yeah. we've done here is it's like a perfect combination of, of both of those ideas. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and I think what's interesting is when I was um, with, when I was studying, to, you know, children's literature like Watership Down is that you you have a lot of books like, you know, like you mentioned, His Dark Materials and like Watership Down and all that, which are sort of categorized as children's books, but at the other time, but in some ways they're, they're adult books as mm. well. And those books that are on the cup, I think are very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I always joke with people like they we call His Dark Materials a children's book, but it ra- it grapples with the idea of trying to kill God itself. It's like, I don't know, that's really a, yeah, a child. Definitely, yeah. But, you know, for kids, yeah. Yeah, exa- yeah, for, yeah exactly. Trying to murder a deity yeah. for children. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so for my listeners, um, can you kind of give a little bit of a of an explanation of what happens in The Magician's Daughter? I never want to be the one to do that because I don't want to give away too much of the plot. Okay, um, so The Magician's Daughter, it, it's set in 1912. Um, it's about a young girl named Biddy, and she's grown up on, an, uh, on a magical island called Hyperthil, which is a real, real mythical island, um, which is off the coast, it's supposedly just off the coast of Ireland. Um, there's a lot of myths about it. Um, it, uh, it only appears at once every seven years, and up until quite recently, it used to actually appear on proper, you know, cartographer's map. Um, and they believed it was a real place, but then, um, but no one knows where it came from. Or, but yeah, so she grew, she's grown up there um, with a um, being raised by a mage and his rabbit familiar. Um, she's never left. He leaves the island every night, um, but she's never allowed to ask where he's gone. One day he he fails to come back, and she um, sets out to look for him. Um, and she ends up getting draw- drawn into an adventure um, where she'll leave the mainland for the first time. Um, she'll, you know, there's a quest to bring mag- magic strained out of the world. There's a quest to bring it back. Um, and then, and over the course of it, she learns a whole lot of things about herself, um, that a whole lot of secrets. Um, she learns that her um, her guardian might not be who think she thinks he is, that the world's not necessarily what she thinks it is. Um and it's a yeah, it's a story about it's about growing up and facing those kind of things for the first time. Um, yeah, yeah, and and I will say for people who uh, you know, this episode will come out like right around the time when the, when the book comes out, so people listening yeah. probably haven't got the chance that I did to read already. And I will just say like you've done something really really wonderful with this book, which is you've written like a wholly original fantasy novel that feels like a fantasy novel that I would have read when I was younger. Like it feels like familiar in the best possible way, but it's wholly original. And I just, I I feel like people are going to love this book from page one. I I think you've absolutely done such a wonderful job with it. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Before uh, you go, my last question for authors is always like, if you could give a recommendation to my listeners, it could be uh, it can be a book or it could be something wholly different. I've had people recommend 
just like going for a walk or a specific <laughs> television show that they like? Just one recommendation that you think more people should know about. Oh, go on with um, pop the watership down. <laughs> Read watership down. That's where I'll go. I'm good with it. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, um, I I agree. I think that's a perfect one. Yeah. Yeah, I've already talked about that, but yeah, more people more people should read it, and you probably already have, but if you haven't, you should, and then you could horrify yourself by watching the 70s movie, but which is a horror film. Yeah, I, that's a, honestly, like, that's, that's a very good point. Read the book, and then if you're going to watch the movie, just be prepared to be absolutely crushed. It is going to break your spirit and soul a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. Th- that is so perfect. Hannah, this was so much fun. Thank you for joining me today. No, thank you so much for inviting me. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other Evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.